Why is it that so many of our leaders are failing us? I do not mean this in the simple political sense, nor in the immediate cultural sense, but why is it such a consistency that when we look out into the world, we only observe leadership failing us? Why is it that so many times when we observe this, we are finding ourselves keeping it to ourselves or complaining in secret, making no avail, no change to the status quo? Why is it the case that when our leaders talk about potentials, capabilities, the rights of the individual, they predicate so many of the ideas about what you could or should be allowed to be able to do on a fictional scenario that may or may not encounter, that most of us will never encounter. I have spoken about this before and I'm going to speak about it again because today we are going to be adding two important terms to our toolbox. And it's going to be important in the coming days and weeks based on a series of interviews I'm looking forward to having, but also the subject itself equips us to better navigate the world, especially in regards to knowledge and information. So I mu but I must return to the question, why is it that so many of our leaders are failing, failing us by justifying our capabilities only on the potential case of self-defense? If we look at anything successful in our world, if we look at things that make achievements, those things are not merely reactionary. They're not simply the result of reacting to circumstances that are placed in front of them. Even the hero's journey, as written by Joseph Campbell, includes a strong dose of choosing to go and act as opposed to simply be blown this way and that by the changes of the wind. Cases of self-defense don't end at the time of the court or they don't end when we are, let's just say, absolved of some sort of legal weight, although that may be the case. They are, there are things that we think about in the way that when we encounter violence, it changes the way we think about the world and not always for the better. Some choose vengeance. In our stories, and as an example, I'm currently reading and listening through the latest novel by Jack Carr, Only the Dead. Um, if you look at the origin story of our hero, the Terminal List is functionally a story of revenge, or is it justice? The moral quandary that is the fantasy that is James Reese begins with an emotional justification of a murdered family. But as we continue down the road, as we continue through the story, we find out that there was so much more involved than simply a random act of violence. And that changes the way that we think about whether or not James Reese is a justified character. But in the mind of the character himself, 
He is not defending himself. The wounds have already been made. There are cases within the story where he, he has an immediate case of self-defense. But in many of the targets and the activities that James Reese continues to carry out through the novels, many, if not most of them, are proactive choices. In fact, when we look out into the world that we live in, we do not operate merely in a reactive sense. We do not merely wait for things to happen. Or when we do, I believe that's one place where we find depression, especially amongst men. And so we observe, whether it's in the arts, whether it's in business, whether it's in philosophy, whether it's in war, whether it's in politics, there is something to be said about not that there's something to be said about those who achieve do so by action, not reaction. And even if you were to zoom out in the high, the the not even meta political, but the the if you were to zoom out in the way that even our country operates, we do not wait. The United States does not necessarily wait to be attacked before they strike first. You could dig into political questions of regime change, which does involve, oftentimes does involve violence, even if it's covert or implied. And that's certainly not, a, not purely a defensive strategy. I, and from the outset, there might be an argument to be made. And so we find ourselves in an interesting question. Why is it that the legal code and the way that citizens are treated in the United States, I mean, the rest of the world could ask, answer those questions itself, but why at least within the United States are citizens burdened in a way where their government is not? Why are citizens burdened to create justification through reaction where legal codes say things like, you must fear, you must be in fear of great bodily harm or loss of life and be incapable of escaping the area. Why is it that we predicate our law and in some ways, in many ways, our, can you say culture? Because, I mean, our culture is, if culture is pop culture, is movies and books and video games and if 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 culture is the way that we talk about politics or what we presume in justifications then maybe the question is otherwise maybe it's a it's a it's a form of double speak perhaps we are taught from a young age to speak with the same mouth two things that directly contradict one another, that we have human rights, but those rights are granted by the state at their own discretion. The terms that we're going to introduce today are a priori and a posteriori, and they refer to knowledge. They're useful terms, 
because they carry weight both in philosophical discussion, but in how we look at things like truth, perception, perspective, and moral justification. The difference, again, we have on the one side, a priori, and then on the other side, a posteriori, comes down to an important philosophical, specifically philosophical definition being justification for knowledge. Two different forms of justification for knowledge. The, the divide between these two is sometimes referred to as Hume's fork, but there are other examples, and this is a long-standing and useful series of terms that even if you're not engaging with those dusty philosophical papers that some of us like to read, this will be helpful in understanding some of the or help. This will be helpful for engaging in some of the upcoming conversations that we're going to have here on the Redacted Culture Cast. But also, they're going to be useful for how we think about moral justification as well as intellectual justification. So, I'm going to read directly from. Uh, this would be the. I'm going to read directly from the Oxford Companion to Philosophy. <coughs> A priori and a posteriori, or posteriori. These are terms primarily used to describe two species of propositional knowledge, but also, derivatively, two classes of propositions or truths, namely, those that are knowable a priori and a posteriori, respectively. Translation. These are terms that refer to two classes of propositions or truths. Two different types of propositions. Proposition in formal logic is something like a truth statement, which is they oftentimes are some oftentimes can be used interject in, inter, uh, back and forth, but a proposition would be something like the desk is brown. That is a statement. Now, you could speak it in 17 different languages, but it'd still be referring to the same thing. In some ways, and then perhaps this is a difficult challenge, but, well, no, it isn't a difficult challenge. It, it, the idea of propositions is predicated on the existence of truth, which is why when you hear things like no truth but power, you're right, you, you, have to, you must recognize that you're dealing with a religious statement intending to abolish from you the foundations of reality, to separate you from reality. So these terms are primarily used to describe two species of, or two species of propositional knowledge, but also, derivatively, two classes of propositions or truths. So a proposition is oftentimes looks like a statement, but it is a truth claim. I am speaking to a computer, or I am speaking, I am speaking into a microphone. That microphone has a sticker on it. These are propositions. Another example of a proposition is, it is immoral to murder. Now, you'll notice that that, that proposition itself doesn't include its own justification. I just made a statement. 
it is immoral to murder. A proposition is something that could be understood as yes or no, true or false. There is no third option. If there are third options, then you're, you're either your proposition is not sufficient, it's not specific enough, or you're dealing with somebody who likes to lie. Or, well, maybe not likes to lie, but you're, you, you're, you're not, you have to be careful when you're dealing with propositional logic because you must be able to sort between somebody who is being malicious about it and somebody who is honestly engaging in it. So, I'm going to continue reading on. Knowledge is said to be a priori when it does not depend for its authority upon the evidence of experience, and a posteriori or posteriori when it does so depend. The difference between a priori knowledge and a posteriori knowledge is does it require experience? Does the authority of the proposition depend on experience. Now, this can sound, you know, this can sound at first confusing. But the difference could also come across like this. In some ways, a form of a priori knowledge would be definitional. All Let's, what's, what's an example? Um, all, uh, all German shepherds are dogs. This is something that we can, is a piece of knowledge that we can come to that is not dependent on experience. Because by definition, a German shepherd, by being of genus, genome canine or whatever the biological term is, is what you would consider a dog. It is by definition a dog. A, a German Shepherd is a breed of dog, and therefore it is a dog. All German Shepherds are dogs. I do, no, I do not need to uh, experience every German Shepherd in order to know that all German Shepherds are dogs because it's baked into the definition. Another example of what might be considered a priori would be numbers. Not one, two, three, four alone, but you could say one, two, three, four in 13 different languages is still referring to the same thing. <clears throat> so numbers, this concept, the abstract object of a number, two plus two equals four. I know this uh, because of what a two is and what a two is, and therefore the combination of those two produces, it, it would account to four. In some, I do not need to experience, well, I'm sorry, those numbers and knowledge of numbers is not required experience. And you could go way down the rabbit hole and saying, well, the ability to observe you and something else would then separate from one to two, but one is still a number, there you go, therefore existence. But if, you're, if I'm going to be very clear on this one, we've used two examples right now of what an a priori knowledge, a, a priori piece of information would be, or an a priori proposition would be. One is true by definition. Two is an abstract concept that is independent of experience. The existence of numbers and the ability to understand numbers is an a priori concept. 
Whereas, um, if I were, and, and a third one would be, what's what's a third good example? I know there's more. Let's see. We'll pull one up real quick through uh, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. No object can be red and green all over at the same time. It's not so much a definition, it's a statement about what a thing, you know, no, nothing can be two things at the same time. A priori can oftentimes, it oftentimes looks like it's boiled down to the laws of logic. The laws of logic being A is A, a thing is itself. I cannot be myself and something else at the same time. Um, or a preposition is itself. It's not something else. It either is true or false. There is no excluded middle, and it cannot be true and false at the same time. Or there is an excluded middle, sorry. Um, and so these, these the, the laws of logic and, and tautologies are, are, in effect, when we're talking about formal logic, examples of a priori knowledge. I can come to the understanding of a modus ponens or a modus tollens. It's not that I can. That's not the right answer. I keep using that phrase wrongly. The knowledge, the understanding, the ability to understand a modus ponens, what modus ponens is or modus tollens is, is achieved absent or is not dependent on observation. And observation can include the other senses, including like smell, touch, taste, word of mouth, being told, instruction, so on and so forth. And so the, this type of information is important when we're talking about moral justification. A priori, and the difference between a priori and a posteriori, again, is a priori does not, the justification for a priori is not experience, but truths. Something cannot be itself is something cannot be true and false at the same time. Or if A, then B, pre proposition 1, and then proposition 2, if B, then C, well, then therefore we can say if A, then C, because if A goes to B and then B goes to C, then therefore if A, then C. This is a, this is a truth that we, can, uh, we understand is not dependent on experience. That's a proposition that is true by itself. This is where you get this idea of there's no such thing as truth. It's all subjective. It's not a believable statement. Something cannot be true and not true at the same time. And then somebody says, well, you know, it can be true today and not true tomorrow, or it can be true to one person and not true to another person. The answer is one of those two people is wrong, or the proposition is not specific enough or it's you're dealing with breakdowns in translation but the existence of a breakdown in translation is not justification for there not being truth and we're going to get into this question about a priori and a posteriori because the way that we approach self-defense is primarily an a posteriori concept it is that we are responding to we require the evidence in the world for the justification of being capable. As if the desire to defend your family must 
be dependent on the experience of attack, the experience of risk in this regards. Risk isn't the right word. It's we must be we must be able to experience risk in order to be justified in being able to defend ourselves, and that is an interesting question. That raises, why is it that our leaders are expecting us to live our lives always on the back foot? Maybe that's something worth considering. If your leadership is expecting you purely to be reactive, if everything in your life is waiting for something to happen so that you can go do a thing, why are you living your life on the back foot? I myself have been guilty of this. I have been I have tried to make myself well aware of how willing I am to constantly be waiting for something to happen so that I can go do the thing, whatever it is. Build a business, write a book, speak, say say what I think is true. But when it comes to self-defense, why uh, when it comes to the idea of capabilities of violence, we do not operate in a world that is static. If we are going to understand morality, we can't build our foundation of the morality surrounding violence on an idea of the world that it would otherwise be static. And when I say understanding the world, I don't just simply mean the way that people act within it. So we will be asking ourselves the question, is there a prior, what is the appropriate, that is a bad connection, we will be asking ourselves, what is the appropriate a priori questions revolving around violence. Now, fools might take this as justification to go out and pillage, or it might create a, produce a, might makes right justification, but if that is your intent, I doubt anything anyone says will stop you. But for those of us who are in pursuit of wisdom, who are concerned about what we think about to be right and true and good, for those of us who are concerned about the mechanisms that we live in in regards to understanding morality, we should leave this day asking ourselves the question of what is it that I believe as far as a justification for being capable of violence? What is our responsibility as living creatures, morally and otherwise, regarding such heavy, hard-to-consider subjects with such grave ramifications? As violence. Recommended reading... 
Well, there's going to be quite a bit, um, but this is a an example where it's it is actually quite useful to have a book on hand, like uh, the Oxford Dictionary to Philosophy or the o Oxford Companion to Philosophy. These are useful th books to have on your shelf. You get to buy one and hold on to it for 30, 40 years, and it's sort of like if you ever remember reading the dictionary back in the day before the internet and Google was around, it's a useful book to have on the shelf. We have things to debate over, things to argue over. But I would, I, for those out there, I would recommend picking one up. Final notes is do not hold or harbor bitterness against leadership against the speakers on the television and the computer and whatever. Do not harbor bitterness against people because they are speaking about the capability of violence in regards to self-defense. Because it is, a, it is an easy example to draw out. In fact, if we observe it happening more often, it, became, it becomes an easier justification. It becomes something ready at our fingertips. But like the pending apocalypse, we, if we base our entire morality on a potential future that we do not know when it will happen, instead of what is right and true and good, we, we will spend the rest of our lives living on the back foot, waiting for something to happen. And that is no way to live. If you'd like to join the discussion, you can head over to redactedculture.locals.com. If you want to join in or support the show, that's where you can head over to. In addition to that, the, we have the store at redactedllc.com where you can find some of our t-shirts. We are looking at stocking the original t-shirt soon. I suspect we'll do a long pre-order and then use the proceeds from that pre-order to try to keep them in stock for as long as we can. That being the case, we appreciate your support. The invert, some of the inverted shirts are already in the mail on their way to you. Some of the sub that we had an um, issue with the subdued ones. There was a, unfortunately, there was an error, but it will be resolved quickly. So for those who are listening and waiting, thank you for your patience. We are streamlining our methods. We are making this a better place. In the meantime, we hope that we have brought edification to your table and intellectual tools to your war chest. This has been the Redacted Culture Cast, and we'll talk to you soon.